Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I am the host of the Sendcast. If you are a new listener, then welcome to the Sendcast. The aim of the Sendcast is really simple. We want to reach lots of people and help everyone learn all about special educational needs and disability. In this episode, we're discussing the importance of focusing on what they can do and not what they can't. And this week's guest is Joanne Jones. Joanne is a consultant, speech and language therapist with more than 20 years experience of working with early years children in the NHS. The Send Card is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are the assessment people. We help show the small sets of progress pupils with SND make. We help schools to show progress for a wide range of abilities and ages. If you're a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where people isn't making progress, we can help. And did you know you can use B-Square's assessment software for more than just pupils with SEND? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time and money and simplifying the whole assessment process. Visit the B-Square website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me and to take you through our assessment software. Let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing the importance of focusing on what they can do and not what they can't. My guest is Joanne Jones, a consultant speech and language therapist with more than 20 years experience of working with early years children in the NHS. Through the home of Can Do, she helps thousands of parents online. She gives them knowledge and tools needed to support their children's speech, language and communication needs. And she has an Amazon bestseller book on the subject. And she's also appeared on BBC Radio and The One Show. Welcome to the show, Joanne. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. You are welcome. Now, in the world of SEN, we typically focus on what people can't do, not what they can do. We're comparing them to their non-SEN peers. We don't celebrate their achievements. And when, we, when they do achieve it, we just often talk about what the next thing they can't do is. That's not great. No, it's not great. And I think that sometimes what got me thinking on this subject was who says, like who says that that's what a child needs to achieve by a certain point? Who who came up with that? Like, And by focusing on aiming for this list, this tick list that we've got to tick off all of these things that children should do at certain times, we actually miss the essence of that child. And I think that when we learn to focus in on what they can do, the first thing that I realise is that lots of times parents and early years practitioners realise that there's way more that they can do than they even realised. So when you change the lens and you start to look for the can-dos, they all start to appear and things don't seem as bleak as maybe they were feeling when you were counting up all those negatives. And then the second thing is when you focus on those can-dos, what happens is they begin to build. You just begin to get more of them. You help the child to make progress, even though you're not focusing on helping the child to make progress. Definitely. Now, you're a speech and language therapist, so I'm hoping in the world of speech and language therapy, these these lists of when things should be done are quite medical-driven and research-driven. In the world of education, it's not. And that's what I find really interesting. So most schools go, yes, they are. Most of them even might be listening going, yes, they are. And the reason I can say that is we develop content for the English curriculum. Mm-hmm. We also develop it for the Welsh curriculum. And we develop it for the Scottish curriculum. And it's all in different orders. Okay, that's interesting. It's, it's so Gove wanted Latin in school. So we all have Latin in school and they want this because I enjoy it. 
a lot of it in, in education is fashion. It's what somebody thinks is important. So the curriculum is based on that. Or what we want is we want to raise expectations. We want to improve outcomes. What we do, we just make things harder and then make everyone jump. It's not always in education research driven. Okay, that's interesting. What I'm hoping in speech and language is much more research driven. Yeah, I think so. Although even so, I think that, you know, what typically happens with the majority of our within 100 children is not going to be right for every child. And when we're kind of ticking boxes and we're working towards, you know, that next tick in the box, it misses an opportunity to kind of walk down the garden path, smell the roses along the way. We just become very driven by those outcomes. And, you know, I think that that happens in health as much as it does in education, even though, you know, it's maybe slightly more research-based and not just a a fad of the time. I think a lot of people think learning is very linear. So they talk about having you have to have these before you move on. And they kind of think of learning as a ladder. Yeah, you can't get up to that rung till you've got everything on this rung, which is wrong. And I, I think of it as more like a climbing frame. Yeah. Yeah. I used to remember there's old kind of things where there's like you can start from it's like a big circle or frame and you can climb up and get to the top in and you can all climb a hundred different routes. Yeah. If you ask five children to climb it, they'll all climb it differently. And they might miss out things, or they might not, or things like that, but they'll do it differently. And I think that is really what we should be focusing on. It's not a set order. It's we want them to get all of these skills, but if they're getting these skills over here first great let's keep that going as well and we'll work out how important is this skill is it one we can just ignore is it one we really need to focus on or is it they'll get it at some point yeah and the other thing is I think that we try to create all children to be generalists to be like good at everything but actually the world needs specialists and if we allow children to become specialists in their subject of interest or in the thing that lights them up or in the skill that they they've got a natural propensity towards, and we encourage that 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 ability to to do more of that. Actually, we're doing society a favour because we've got these people who have got different skills, different, and they're lit up by it. They're motivated by it. They want to learn rather than them being forced to learn things that just don't suit their their brain and their personality. Now, I'm going to change what you said slightly there. You said you want children to be good at everything. I think we need to correct that too. The DfE wants the children to be great at what they have specified they must do. It's not everything. It is a conveyor belt, and they have to fit in this mould through education to pass these exams to get the PISA scores up. There's a lot of skills missing. And if if you talk to the kids in secondary school and compare it to your journey, secondary school is very different. They don't do – there's loads of things they don't do which I think is a real detriment to those children's education, but it's the way it's gone. And there are children in schools with so many different skills, experience, knowledge, and none of that is used because it's not fitting into this mould. It's not fitting into these set of boxes we will work through over the next five years. So therefore we'll ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. And that's really hard for a parent where you know your child is really good at something they're really passionate about it and it's never touched on in school but you're told about actually your child can't do this can't do this can't do this and you're going yeah but they've got all of this they're amazing they can do all this yeah that's not really in our curriculum (laughs) but it's sad it is it is it's really sad and it's 
short-sighted and it's, you know, we've got a mental health crisis in this country and it just is feeding into that because actually when you're trying to squash square pegs into round holes, what happens is the outfall of that is stressed out children, stressed out parents, trying to fit into something that is arbitrary anyway, you know, it's, it's, it's made up. And so how, how can we encourage people to have good mental health, to feel good about themselves, to make that progress along their own journey when we're starting from such a young age to create that stress and anxiety. Definitely. And it is, it's, and I think for most of the time, if you're working age-related expectations and life is happy, you are in the norm and life is good. But as soon as you don't fit in there, you are only ever really compared to where you should be, what you should be doing. And I know so many things about targets and things like that. People are saying it's what they should be and all this lot. And it's not, it should be individualized. We should be looking at who that child is, what they can do. And the whole EHCP processes around this is what are those next steps? What are we working towards? And it's about celebrating that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think from the parents' point of view that I work with, you know, almost like the permission to celebrate that goes once they get into that system. They don't feel that they can be really happy about these tiny little inch stones, as we call them, you know, those tiny little movement, movement forward, because everybody's telling them that that's not enough, that, that their child's not ticking this box. You know, there's more to be had. There's more that we need. And once that permission goes, the, the stress and anxiety on parents is massive. I talk about parents of children who we talk about late talkers because, you know, there's lots of things banded around about nonverbal or preverbal. And actually, you know, we don't know what journey this child's on. They're not talking yet. And we would always work towards and anticipate that that talking and definitely the communication will be there. And, um, and so for parents, you know, they carry this backpack of responsibility around with them every day where they feel like they've got this milestone of starting school. And if their child's not toilet trained and is not talking in sentences and is not ready for school, that somehow they're failing their child. And that stress and that anxiety around this makes for a really difficult journey. And having a child who has got a neurodiversity or is a late talker or has got a, a developmental delay in and of itself has its challenges, but what is more so is the system that they're trying to fit into causes that difficulty and makes that journey so much harder than it needs to be. I was watching a clip on the internet. It was a comedian talking about his autistic son. And it was fascinating. And he was going, yeah, my five-year-old son, I've been told he can't communicate. He's pre-verbal, blah, blah, blah. And he went, he is the most effective communicator out of everyone. He goes, he always clearly, I know what he wants every time. It's very clear, but it's just not in the way he should be doing it at that stage in school. That's the difference. It's he's not fitting into this mold. And it, it's really, it's really stressful if your child doesn't fit into this mold. And I, I remember with my children, we, we did the NCT antenatal classes for my eldest and we met a load of other parents and then you keep in touch and you're, and it's like, and you get a message, oh, look, they took his first steps. And you start swearing because your child isn't. And you just do a really heavy training routine to get your child to make, because they won't be them that far behind. And it is this, you compete and you worry and you watch them. But, and you, but you do notice, you say, oh, they are doing that. And you go, 
oh, but they're not doing this and my child can. And it is this comparison that is always there. Now, when you start realizing that your child is maybe not developing like everyone else is, you've got that all that going on inside your head. You don't want it rammed down your throat by a school every time you talk to them, how far behind your child is and always focusing on that negative. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I always say to parents, like, what, what are we aiming for here? Like, what is, what is the outcome that we want for our children? And every parent will say, I want my child to be happy. You know, that is the first thing out of every parent's mouth. And, you know, you've got to then look at what do you mean by happy and how are you going to achieve that happiness and connection and communication in whatever form is absolutely at the heart of that. And when you start to focus on that, like the connection that you have with your child, then, you know, you start to build this beautiful path forward where, you know, you can strive for happiness. But if what you're carrying around with you is this anxiety and this need to teach, like I always go back to, you know, when you first have a baby and they weigh them like within the first minute of them being born and then they put it in, a, they chart it on some obvious charts of where they are. And then they make you go back to a clinic and get them weighed. Over. And if they don't put on weight, like they're like saying, oh, well, they're not putting on weight. Like, how are you feeding? And there's this pressure. And like the worst thing for a baby who's not feeding is for a parent to feel pressure and try and get them to feed more. Like it just doesn't work. And so you've got that like what the pressure makes you do is the opposite to what the baby needs. And that's exactly the same with these little ones that are, are not developing at the rate that they should or, you know, and once you feel that pressure, what you do is you go into teach mode and we can't teach language when the, we're first learning it. We have to facilitate it. We have to provide an environment where the child can thrive. And so the, the teaching and the pressure to get them to walk or get them to talk or get them to do the next thing makes you do all the things that are the least helpful for that child. It comes from a good place. It comes from the right motivation, but it just doesn't help. And so I see so many parents stuck in the cycle of desperately trying everything they can and actually nothing's working because it's the opposite to what the child needs. I remember my, my youngest is on the spectrum and she was a really late walker. She wouldn't let go of your hand when she was walking and you're literally trying to do everything. And we tried everything. We thought everything. And there was a moment, and I, I can still picture this. This is like 12, 13 years ago, 14, however many. And we were in a soft play, and she's holding my fingers, and she's walking along, happy as anything, until she clocked this child, almost the same height as her, walking past her the other way. And she just sat there and looked at this child. And it kind of, in my head, I imagine her head went, I don't have to hold these hands. <laughs> And she just let, she literally, this child will pass and she just rotated round, rotated back, and let go of my hands and just walked off. <laughs> There's oh. nothing, we tried everything. And it was this child walking past. And obviously she just, something clicked in her head and she went, I don't have to do this. I can, I'm on, I can be free and off. And it was just like, it blew me away. It was just fascinating. And we think, they're dumb we think they don't understand we think they don't there are we just don't understand them that's actually what it is is we don't understand their level of communication their understanding that's what it is they're not they are fascinating they're taking the world in and it is fascinating 
I was going to ask you, you work with lots of parents. And the first thing you said is, we want my child to be happy. What, what other things are parents wanting for their children? What is it they're after? What is it? I think acceptance. So the wider acceptance of society and of schools and of other people. I think that a celebration of who that child is for who they are. And I think that they don't feel at first that that's okay to ask for or, or expect. They often feel like society or the system judges their child as less than because they're different. And when we have a community online, so, and the parents who work with me are all together as well. And when they meet other parents that are wanting that same thing, you know, the, the celebration is huge and the appreciation for their children as who they are is huge. And with that comes that deeper connection. And although I don't think they come to me saying, I want a deeper connection with my child, I think that when they get that, they realize that that's actually what they were striving for. And that the difficulties and the worries and the stress of, of the system actually stops that connection because they're focused on what the child should be doing and not what they actually are. And when that connection comes, it's such an amazing time because suddenly you like can see even through all the challenges, because there are challenges, the challenges of sleep and challenges of going out places and challenges with what the mother-in-law says and challenges with, you know, so much that stuff. And um, when, when they release that and they focus on their child and they focus on that connection, all of those things aren't as difficult as they were when the system and the people outside of their little bubble were kind of Im- creating an impact for them. It's interesting you didn't say that it's all about the English math SAT scores or getting whatever GCSE grades. It was, it's about their entire life. And yes, academic performance helps get qualifications which leads to jobs i get all of that but for these children you've got the four broad areas of need yeah yeah you've got that communication interaction you've got semh you've got sensory and physical yes you've got cognition and learning but for lots of these children it's the other ones are the barriers and you get that report at the end of the year and it's about english and maths mainly yeah and you're told off they're not going to get the SATs or this, and it's about that. And you're going, and yes, there is the EHCP annual reviews and things like that. But I think in a lot of mainstream schools, that's not really properly embedded within the school. No. And it's not celebrated. To me, if your child has an EHCP, you should be kind of reporting on those four areas of need in their annual reports or their terminally reports. It should be part of that because that is what is important to that child. That is what the parents want to hear about rather than just they're not doing great in English, they're not doing great in maths. And because and I, I talked to a school recently that that's all they report. And I go, our parents keep complaining about this. I went, but if that's all you tell them, that's all they'll worry about. Yeah. Yeah. If your report says they're rubbish at English and maths, and they're going, they're rubbish, we need to do English and maths. Is that really what's needed? Or actually, are they not doing so well in English and maths because they're struggling in all these other areas? And if you support those other areas, English and maths will just bloom, hopefully. But it is, it's what is important to a parent and what is important to a school are often completely unaligned. Yeah, I agree. And I I do wonder from a teacher's point of view, especially in those early years, you know, foundation stage, whether they just don't have that awareness of those other things and how to measure them. And they find it very difficult to put that focus on that just because 
you know, there's, there's not many children in a mainstream school that, you know, out of that class of 30, you might have three or four children each year who have these significant needs. And they, they don't have the language and they don't have the permission almost to focus on those things. And I think once, if they have that, they too would feel the same. They want to celebrate these children, but they don't necessarily have the, the means to do that. They don't know how to do that. It's quite in, um, the government did a new development matters in 2021, which is in terms of SEN is really disappointing because they have merged the lowest level, which was birth to 11 and then various other, it's now birth to three years. So all the guidance and training is about, oh, yeah, it's birth to three years. is simple. And I get they completely did that for reducing the paperwork for childminders. I completely get that. But when you have a child in reception working within that zone, there is a complete lack of support and guidance around it. And that is, you might say, oh, yeah, we do all this on top of, but it's not there. It's down to individual nurseries or early years teams to do that themselves which means in any general training, it will not be there. So in reality, a lot of training is not doing, they are, the government is doing some stuff with the SCND and AP plan, but it's not enough. And immediately your child isn't being assessed or supported properly. And it goes from there. I need to stop moaning. I need to stop moaning. Be yeah. more positive. Be more positive. Let's focus on what they are doing, not what they're not doing. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally understand. And I think that the other thing that I find is that People seem to, in general, that's parents and teachers and, and early years practitioners, they know what they want from the child. So they know that they want this child to talk, but they don't know how to break that down necessarily. And I don't think development matters happens with that because there's no real breakdown of what what are the steps. You know, I often say I'm not that interested in the talking because I know that if we celebrate the, the communication and we make sure that all these other steps along the way are in place, the talking will come. And that, that can be a bit kind of counterintuitive when parents first start working with me. They're like, why would you say that? But once give them those steps, and I show them how play has to develop, how attention and listening has to develop, how interaction has to develop, then it gives them that roadmap. And instead of them just standing in the, I always say they like stand in the corner and try and pull the child to where they want to be. You know, I want this child to talk. I'm going to do anything I can to get my child to talk. I'm going to do flashcards and I'm going to buy an app that just hammers the word at them all of the time because as long as they're saying words I'm okay that they're, they're talking and then, you know communication is not about that communication is about a relationship and a connection and taking turns in a conversation and listening to the other person and expressing what's in your in your in your head it's not just being able to say words but when parents see that like they embrace it and they know what they're doing and they know how to work with it it's just that they only know what they can hear and that's just always based around how many words you know everyone always starts by telling me how many words their child is or isn't saying it to me this is it's two parts from a very your speech language much more but there's is two parts to communication there is a cognitive concept and then there's the physical ability and i think people if they can't say the words they don't understand there's two parts and you can use stuff like pecs and various other low-level AAC. And it is that, and I've watched some of the training from PECS. It's really interesting. It's, it's helping them understand that they can ask for things. They can do things like that. So how do you get them to understand that could ask for something? That's the first level. Then being able to clearly say what, or what it is you want, and you can do pick. But is that, there's a whole thing goes on. It's not just about saying words. It's actually going, I can say yes or no. 
it's having understanding there is a choice. Yeah. And then it's well, how do I communicate that? Well, nodding or shaking or it's it's all those things. And it's if you can get that cognitive ability going and build on that, speech is one of the most efficient ways of communicating. Yeah. So they'll get to the point maybe they get frustrated that they're not getting it. They might, it, it, but that is that cognitive journey in the same way my daughter wouldn't let go of my hands until she saw a reason of, Ooh, it, it, for some children, it's like that. I, I know when I was growing up with the neighbor's children, she basically, my mum summarized as she, the, the girl didn't see a point in talking until she could say complete sentences. What's the point of saying one word? And she literally was no communication and then she just came out with full sentences one day. And I, I, that was fascinating. I don't, I, you could probably tell me the reasons or that. I have no idea. But it, again, it's, it's not necessarily a physical thing. It's the cognitive, the wanting to, the reasons for, and things like that are much bigger. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of separating out those two is really important. But I also see it the other way where actually cognitively those skills are all there, but the child's still not talking. And often we forget to look at the physical reasons why that might be. And so many children that come into my world and into my services have actually got restriction within their mouth that has been missed. And that restriction often stops that early, early, uh, early talking. And, you know, we 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 don't necessarily look at that as a first port of call when we're uh, a speech therapist, but more and more I am seeing that to be a reason why children are first not talking at all, second only making noises, and then third those children have got an intelligible speech that need lots and lots of help to get those sounds going. I was one of those unintelligible children. Okay. And it was I had to go to a speech and language therapist. I've got interesting teeth. So I have to fold my tongue up more to get the words out and clearer and things like that. And that's the thing is, is it was unintelligible and people just look at you confused most of the time. So why bother? Yeah. And I remember my friend's mum and it's still there. So obviously it still impacts me, but I would talk to her and she would just look at me and look at her son and go, what did he say? Oh. And it would just go, okay, I won't talk. To and that's the thing is, is this is a psychological part as well, which you throw in, but yeah, it, it, there's so many bits. We just assume it is, they don't want to or they can't say words. And there is a lot more underneath that. And people, you have to break it down. And again, going back to that training is my mum went and did teacher training. It was fully three years teacher training. A lot of child development, child psychology, all of that. A lot of teachers doing PGCEs, things like that. A lot of that year is spent in, situ in, in schools and stuff. So you're, almost, you're not getting that fundamental idea of development in theory, that's going to get picked up on the job and you will pick it up. And that's the thing is you do learn, you get face challenges and teachers will get out books and learn and research and find out how to support it. But you're not given those tools from the beginning. No. And I've, I don't know whether I should really say this, but I trained, I, I owned a nursery for three years. And as part, so I was a speech language therapist at that time. And the area was identified as being an area of high speech and language need. And I put in a, a bid for it and I won. But I wasn't a, early years practitioner and so I had to do my NVQ level three early years practitioner as part of having that role and the person who trained us in that course and I'm sure it was just a blip um, but the person who trained us didn't have any children of her own she wasn't an early years practitioner and she didn't she hadn't had any siblings or any she had no reference of children and her background was in animal behavior 
And she taught that NVQ Level 3 course, giving all of her examples around animals and how animals behaved because she didn't have anything to reference it from. Now, that was okay for me because I had a degree in speech and language therapy and I probably could have stood up there and like at certain parts, but not all of it, obviously. But for some people, that was their training. That was their training that they were going to be relying on for going in. And, you know, I'm sure that that doesn't happen often. But if we don't prioritize training for these people on that front end, then what? Then we can't expect them to go in and do that job. That's unfair. Like we can't expect them to do to understand all of this stuff because your actual fundamental training is the thing that stays with you the most. That that teacher training, that speech therapy training, the stuff that you learn at that first port is the most important. And I think that getting that right is fundamental. That's the thing. I think as you learn about, you're building up a framework in your head of how things are connected. And generally, I think everything else kind of goes into that framework. And if that framework is kind of wrong, it's going to be hard to pick up things or understand things, or you might have to logically in your head completely rebuild that framework, which is a lot of, and it is that sort of thing. As you learn about it, you've got to kind of learn it the right way. And it's really hard. I, and I don't think, and I think it might sound like I'm bashing you teachers. I'm not. I literally, <laughs> it, it's literally, you are so dedicated. You're running into a world full speed with your heart, and everything, doing everything, but you haven't got the tools at the start that you need. And that's that's a bit. It's you are very all dedicated. You're dedicated. I meet so many amazing teachers, and you, you literally, you're all your heart is all there and everything. And then what happens over time is all the pressures from above kind of corrupt you and things like that. I won't go down that route yet, but it is. It, it it's not. I'm not at all saying teachers are bad or anything. It is literally you need more support and training to be as effective as you really want to be. And I think that, you know, these people who go into these careers are good people with, you know, they want, they go in because they want to make a difference. It's the same with speech therapy. It's the same with all of these kind of professionals. They want to do something worthy and they have an intuition as to how that, how they want to help and support and nurture children. But the system kind of rubs against that intuition. They can't do what they know and they feel is right. And, you know, my, a lot of my family, my brother's a teacher, his wife's a teacher. You know, we've got a lot of teachers in the family. And I know how difficult that job is. Like, it's such a difficult job, but it's made even more difficult that actually what's expected of them goes against what they feel in their heart would be the way they would do it if they could. So let's talk about what they can do. And to me, when I think about not what they can't do, because generally what they can't do is going to be focused on the numeracy and the literacy and all those typical expectations. When we think of what they can do, to me, I look at it as two different areas. One is, this is where they should be on that ladder, but actually, yeah, they can't do those bits, but we're also completely ignoring those bits they can do really well. So a typical autism trait of their decoding is much better than their comprehension, or a child with dysgraphia, their composition is great, but their handwriting, so all things like that is you kind of, you get stuck on the area they're struggling with the most. Yeah. So you can, you're focusing on their bad comprehension or they need to improve that. There's not everything, but you're completely ignoring their decoding skills. You're ignoring other parts. And the same with the writing. You're focusing on their bad handwriting. You're, you're almost ignoring the amazing stories then can create because you're focusing on that. And that is, we need to look at this not 
as a ladder, but as that climbing frame. So say, okay, their handwriting is bad, but actually what's their composition like? What's their spelling like? What's their vocabulary, grammar, and punctuation like? If you get rid of the handwriting and use a laptop, what's the work looking like? Is it amazing? Yes. Let's celebrate everything there. And the handwriting, yes, we need to get that up. But in the world of digital, is it that important? And the same with the decoding, that reading and all that lot. Is it their readings bad or is it actually a part of their comprehension's bad? So that's the one part is don't think of things linear. Yeah, you have to go through these steps. You cannot access that. My mum always used the example because my dad was worked at IBM. I've had computers all my life and I could write on a keyboard, hello, my name is Dale with capital letters and a full stop before I could hold a pencil. If you look at the order of things, that shouldn't happen. But I could. I had to acknowledge I could do that. It's in the wrong order. But the other thing is, what skills are you looking at? So the first one, is it the skills, are they in the correct order? But the other one is, what skills does the child have that we can celebrate? What are the wider skills they have? And that's the thing, is often they will have different skills. Now, they're always celebrated in school. And a lot of the neurodiverse, we, we don't fit into the mould in schools. But we have lots of other skills. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, life, world-changing skills, skills that are going to go on to make people change makers and, you know, bring in different ideas and different things. And those people need celebrating. And often they're the people who don't fit in and leave school feeling disheartened and as though they can't do anything and uh, have really, you know, poor self-esteem. And I think, you know, I mean, we experience this in my family. I've got four children and we've all got neurodiversities of some some description. And my youngest is dyslexic and really struggles. She's probably got dysgraphia, although she's not been diagnosed with that. You know, she struggles to get her thoughts onto her paper. She's year four. Um, but she's incredibly emotionally intelligent and she's a brilliant at getting things done and bringing people together. And she's wonderful at telling imaginative stories. But from a school point of view, they don't ever really see that because everything that they're looking for has to go through her hand onto a piece of paper. And she just can't do that. Even spelling, like if they did a spelling test where she would say it out loud, she would fly. She can do that when she leaves the house, you know, spell things out verbally, but she can't then channel that through her hand. And, you know, I think that I can see what amazing potential she's got, what a great life she can have as long as school doesn't kind of squash it out of her in the meantime. And, you know, we work really hard as a family to kind of appreciate all of those things. But I I think that if schools were able to kind of give her things where she could ex- fly, you know, her perception of herself is that her brain doesn't work properly and everybody else can do it and she can't do it. And you know, however much I say as a mom, but you're brilliant at this and you're amazing at that. When she goes back into that peer group and she feels like she doesn't measure up to those peers, you know, that that's a long, lifelong feeling of not not fitting in and not being good enough. And I think that schools could play a really big part. You know, they often celebrate kindness, like the school that they're at is really big on kindness and being kind. And they do celebrate kindness and she is very kind. But you know, there's other things like kindness that are equally valuable. It does, it, I think it kind of, it stops at kindness, whereas actually that's missing a trick. You know, what about those leadership skills? What about those helping others to achieve or being creative, but not in, in a typical way? I always look back at my own school career and I went to a very 
old fashioned grammar school. It was it was a public grammar school, it wasn't a private school, but you know, it was all very serious subjects. There was no there was art, that was it. And so I was rubbish at art. I can't do anything art like I can't draw. But I'm incredibly creative. But it took me to thirty five to realise how creative I am and what amazing things I can create. And I know like technology's come on, so that's a helping hand. But if somebody had just opened up that creative part of me at an earlier age, it wouldn't have taken me so long to get to the point where I realized that about myself and, and could, you know, base some of my, how I felt about myself around that. And so I think having a wider set of skills that children are measured up to, even if they're not, even if that's just alongside what's being done already and giving children that that inner dialogue of like you're good at this i think could go massively towards children's journeys beyond school that's that's the thing it is it's all about this mold you have to fit into this mold work has to be handwritten the whole thing of if you're handwriting you move on to pen yeah all that stuff it's it's i um i use computers from early on and I remember doing my homework in writing stories in secondary school and copying and pasting text around on the screen. So when I restructure my story, it's copy there and paste it. Oh, that's a better order. That's great. I remember being told to do that on paper and just going, what a waste of time. I'm writing the same thing out three times. What is the, and I just, I'd never understood the benefit of doing this in this paper world. I've always been very digital and it's great. And there are so many things that can help. It's this fixation of data has to be presented or information has to be presented a certain way. You have to spending this way. We have to do it this way. And it doesn't work for everyone. And if you don't fit into that mold, you are generally destroying that child inside. You talked about that creativeness took you to 35 to come out, but you're talking about low self-esteem. I've got, my parents kept all my school reports. So I have all my school reports. I looked through them recently and it is fascinating. When I look back, I'm going, I'm still exactly the same. <laughs> but rather than you celebrating those amazing bits I could do, all my reports generally, they generally said really good verbal work, never in the written. Yeah. Easily distracted. So it's basically, it just says the same thing again and again and again and again. Great ideas, but you're not doing it in handwritten work. And there are multiple reasons that actually my hand couldn't keep up with my head. Yeah, I had this amazing idea. I couldn't get it down quick enough. Or I got bought, whatever it is. But it's like, yeah, once I left school, once I started work here, I used a computer. <laughs> I can touch type. My hand can keep up. I do brain dumps. I can write 10 pages in Word without even noticing. Then I go... Oh, hang on, that's in a really bad order. And I rearrange it all. Yeah. It's so much better. Yeah. It works for my head. And talking to Aaron Smith, who runs a dyslexia show, who is severely dyslexic, he talks about all the tools he's used, not for the last year, for the last 20 odd years. And he is absolutely amazing. There's things he can do that others cannot. Yeah. But he, well, he went through his whole school life feeling, I'm rubbish. Yeah. And you wonder, like, how often have you needed those skills? Like, how often have you needed to be able to write since leaving school? And, you know, especially in this technological age, like, we don't even need to spell. We can just say the word and it'll get typed for us. Like, 
We don't need those things. They're not going to hold us up. They're not going to impact on society. They're not going to make us less worthy human beings. And yet, you know, a broken child who's got poor self-esteem because they've always believed themselves to be not good enough, you know, those things have a big impact. That ability to be successful if your self-esteem is poor is much harder. Obviously, it drives some people. But for some people, that stops their their ability to reach their potential, not that they couldn't spell in school, but because those self-esteem issues are, are still there, that voice in their head is still there. And I think, you know, we, we get our priorities right just in general as a society. It's not just in education. We should be aiming for happiness, not aiming for perfect development. Perfect development based on the fashion of an MP somewhere <laughs> in the, type in the moment. And we all got told when we were at school, we need to do this. Why? You're not going to be walking around with a calculator in your pocket when you're older, are you? Yeah. Yeah, we've, we've got the Encyclopedia Britannica in my pocket. And not only that, everywhere I don't even need to have to use my finger. I can just ask Siri or ask yes. Alexa. I can just literally hold a button on my watch and talk to it, and it will talk back to me. Yeah. We don't know what the future's like. We, the fact we're recording a podcast, a podcast didn't exist when I was at primary school or even secondary school. Yet yeah, this is where we are, and people are listening, and we're recording – it's we're making decisions based on old information. I think Lorraine Peters says it great. We've got a 20th, 20th century workforce with a 20th century education system trying to create 20, 21st century people. Absolutely. There's got to be big changes, but I completely understand it's literally down to money. And I'm not talking about teacher salaries is it's an exam is the quickest way. i.e., the cheapest way to assess someone's information. An ability. So that's what we do. Yeah. It's the quickest and cheapest way. If you actually had to sit there and have a conversation with every student and then you judge it, there's a whole, oh, is this going to be good enough? And you do more. It gets more complicated, but it's better. Yeah. We're stuck in this way of doing things. Now, oh, I love the fact that stuff like chat GPT and AI is really mucking up the whole <laughs> essay and <laughs> dissertation world. That's going to be lots of fun. And, I think things are going to change and they need to change. We need to celebrate and accept that the world is digital. And yes, I'm not great at spelling. There's some words I still cannot spell after 40 years on this planet. I get them wrong every time and they come under underlined squiggly and I'm going, oh, <laughs> I do the same. And I have to say certain words the right way. I don't say them how you say them. I say them as I'm writing it. I say it a completely different way in my head so I can spell them. But if I get it wrong, I get a squiggly line and it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Who cares? Who cares? Generally, it's not how well I spell. It's like what I wear. I'm quite a relaxed person. I'm in a T-shirt. I'm in jeans. Does what I wear, does how neat my uniform is, change the meaning or my ability to understand or educate or share information? No, it does not. And that's There's things like that. I get there's a certain thing about it, but. Surely what I am saying is more important than what I am wearing and my grammar and my punctuation. Surely the message is more important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think for schools is if a child isn't doing what is expected of them, remember that's not your expectation. You might feel it is, but it's a national expectation, which you are delivering. So it's not your, it's, Okay, but what can they do? Because if 
they go through the education system feeling their entire life they can't, then they will believe they can't. But if you can find, yeah, we're not there, but look at what you are doing. And it might be they got some skills on the next level or they're doing stuff more. Yeah. Or actually, you're not great, but actually at home, you've been able to do this. There are so many children who will either do cooking or doing stuff at home, or they go off and they have, especially in the neurodiverse world, they might have a fascination of something Mm -hmm. and they go learn all about that. And they can give you a lot more information you ever possibly could imagine because they're interested in it. So celebrate that as well as going, yeah, you're not right, but actually you're doing really well there. And if they have got interests, can you use that in supporting them in what they can't do? Absolutely. And I was going to say that because one of the things I, I knew that this was right when I start, started off and working in this way, but what I didn't realize is that actually when you do more of what they can do, they actually start to make development. So you're not even looking at the next thing. You're just doing what they can already do. And they nudge themselves up that developmental kind of step pathway. You don't need to be focusing on those other things. They come naturally once the child is in a place where their brain is doing what they want. I say, you know, it's like it becomes a fertile ground. It wants to connect. Those neurons want to connect when there's that natural interest. So using what they can do, focusing on curiosity and the love of learning is like one of the most important things we can do. So letting them do more of what they can already do will lead them to achieve in areas that they may be finding difficult. And they talk about like self-guided learning that you kind of, you, you start them off and you have that spark and they talk about how that, and it grows and they learn things on their own without you, any input from you as a teacher, they are off. We do that if they're working at or above, but if they're working behind, it's almost like that can't happen. Yeah. And I am someone as if I want to do something, I am going to learn. Yeah. I am going to research and learn more than I need to. Yeah. If I'm doing something and I come across a barrier, I will get past that barrier. Yeah. Because I want to. Yeah. Whereas at school, the barriers that are in front of me, I didn't want to get past because I'm not interested in them. Yeah. If you give me something I'm interested in, a passion, that's what I love about project-based learning, is you can get stuck in and you will want to learn. And you, you will go off on tangents and learn so much because you are interested. Those are the things you remember, even as an adult, like the projects that you did at school that are like the ones that lit you up, the things that you, I can remember doing, all sorts of things. But when it was just the mundane like you're not interested in it you're not going to learn like it's just you're just not we were talking about this yesterday we i did a project at primary school on explorers yeah that was 30 something years ago and i i did a project on marco polo and i i can still remember creating this big like a2 poster and writing and drawing and researching and loving it it wasn't a worksheet it wasn't we're going to learn about this one thing and then a six mark question it was go and learn about this. And I went off and I had that freedom to, out of Marco, what interested me the most? Oh, he went here. Well, where's there? Yeah. Oh, that yeah. was interesting. And you, you just took yourself on. Yeah. And just because they're not at the same ability as their peers, it doesn't mean you can't do that. It's, you need to look at those softer skills. Yeah. And see um, it as different and not less. Like it's of equal value. You know, it's not that just because they're not at that level that where they are is something to be concerned about. 
it's it's just a different way and a different way of of learning and living and thriving and and you know if we just could embrace that oh we'd have so much more engagement in school we'd have so much less school refusal we'd have so much better self-esteem because children would feel that they were enough and actually that's all any of us want (laughs) like that's the most basic of human desire to just feel accepted feel enough feel like you're doing okay and I think it wouldn't be a big shift to help children start to feel like that more. And, and the thing is, is I think all teachers almost start off with that idea. They start off with that. But then as you hit schools, league tables, SATs, Progress 8 scores come in. Yeah. And you're led to believe that that is the most important thing. And if you read like the government's white paper, I think their intentions are right because they know that if we get more qualifications or higher levels, it leads to happier outcomes in life. Yes, if you have a job and a safe place to live, which is clean and not damp and things like that, you will in, you'll be a happier person. Mm-hmm. Great, completely agree mm-hmm. with that. Problem is, it's more like they're then hitting everyone to make sure that achieved rather than doing it collaboratively and supportively you just read the way they're trying to make it happen and you already see it's not supportive. It's this expectations and you will do it. And then the local authority, it's just the, the right intention is there. The way it's being delivered or the way we're being pushed down that isn't right. And it is generally, this is a, we have to achieve this at the expense of everything else, which is not what we want. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. So, yes. And that thing is, is none of us as adults are this uniform person. Yeah. Look around you. How many is this uniform person with a great at English and great at maths and great at logic and great at creativity? I am 40 something and I still don't know my nouns, verbs and adjectives. I don't know them. And it's had zero impact on my life. And Thomas, unless someone says, give me a noun. That's the only time it impacts me. However, lots of other things are great. So how much in school, especially in primary, there are core things which are important. Yeah, there's a a good understanding of maths is important. But learning about fronted adverbials, past progressive tense and all that isn't really hugely important. Someone's decided it's important. GCSEs, there's a big thing about A-levels going up to, maths going up to 18. I've done maths. I've done further maths. No one should do those A-levels. They are horrible and they have no served zero purpose in my life, unless you want to go be an astrophysicist or something. If they did good maths, interesting maths, the maths I used in my hobbies for the next six years after finishing school was the maths I never did in school. I had to learn it. But I, it would have been so much more useful. It's practical maths. Yeah. But no. But that's, it's, it's, yeah. I think the education system has to change. And we do need to celebrate. We really do need to help people celebrate what they can do. That's the underlying message of this whole podcast. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I think, you know, that's what it's all about. Feeling, feeling like you're, you, you're okay. And, for parents and for teachers, the more they can do to help those children feel like they're okay, the the, the happier they're going to be, and the more they're going to achieve in life. It's not it's not about 
individual skills. It's about a feeling of, of wanting to participate and wanting to be, and, and just being enough. It's about being enough. If you're a user of ChatGPT, ask ChatGPT what is good progress for people with SEN. It will tell you it's individual. Yeah. Which is the answer. Yeah. And it also tells you it's not just about English and maths. It's about social, emotional, and physical. Chat GPT uses all the research off the internet and gets the right answer. Yeah. You can actually, if you go on the B squared website and go to the blogs page, you'll see I actually spent a day or so having conversation with Chat GPT around this topic and asking it different questions. And I'm literally, I'm reading his answers going spot on. It's what all the research, it's what everything, all the good practice tells them. Yet that's not what we're seeing in schools because of the pressures from above. Mm. Yeah, it's what is important for children with SEN is what is important to children with SEN and their parents. So with the EHCP, you have that preparing for adulthood part. You have those targets across the four broad areas of need. They are more important than English and maths to me. And that's what you should be pushing. That's what you should be celebrating because they are the things that are going to make a difference to that child's life. Yeah, I completely agree. Cool. Anything you want to add before we wrap it up? No, I don't think so. I think we've uh, put the world to rights there. <laughs> I think we have. It's been a bit of a moany episode. And, and I, it is, it, if you think about it, it is, we're telling everyone we, we, we're doing what we're telling you not to do. We are telling you all the things you're doing wrong. We're not celebrating what you are doing right. <laughs> and it's kind of the way we are designed to be. It feels that we will point out everything that's wrong. We forget to celebrate what's good. And that is important. So when you're sitting there writing reports, and especially if you've got that child who's literally going, yeah, yeah, no effort, no this. It's like, why? It's always asking that why question. In my reports, I, my attainment used to be the top. My effort used to be the bottom. Yeah. No one ever asked why. No one, it just, it was my fault, apparently. I kind of, I understand a lot more now. But it's, it's why. Yeah, asking why. Okay, what's going on? Generally, I think all children want to learn. We all like to learn. Mm -hmm. We all want to please other people. Mm -hmm. So if we're not doing those things, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you start from there and just find out, Okay, so they're not learning here, but where are they? And it is, yeah, I, I find it fascinating when your child gets an interest, their level of knowledge in that interest is phenomenal. Yeah, and that's what I was saying at the beginning. You know, we, we need people with amazing knowledge in small amounts of air. That's what, you know, society needs that. And yet that's not celebrated early on. You know, we, we, you know, if they've got a special interest, it's seen as an obsession or as, a, as something that's negative. Whereas actually, like having deep understanding, I always talk about, you can go broad or you can go deep and, and either's good. So if your child wants to go deep, you can go deep because, you know, that that's going to help learning. That's what lights them up and that's what's going to help progress. A couple of years ago, somebody posted in one of my Senko groups on Facebook, a, they took a photo of a page on a book and it was where a parent was saying, oh, when my child was younger, he used to write lists down or write lyrics to songs down. He used to write all these things and give them to me. I'd be so happy. And as he grew older, he got his device, his tech, and he no longer does those things he used to. And tech has destroyed him, blah, blah. And it just went on saying it's all tech's fault. And I went, oh, that's quite sad. And everyone was saying, yes, that's a problem with tech. Then I took a step back and I went, 
well, actually, there's something else going on. It is he actually probably now has an interest, but you're not interested in it. When it was the lyrics and it was shopping lists, yeah, I'm, I'm into this. Now it's Minecraft, and you really don't care about Minecraft. When he shows you it, you show absolutely zero interest. He's not going to share his Minecraft with you again. Oh, and I think it's, beyond that point, you said to him, I'm not interested in you anymore. So he's gone, well, okay, <laughs> I won't share with you. And so it's not the tech that was the problem. It was you don't like what he's doing, so you're not showing any interest. And it might be you don't understand what he's doing, but that's a you thing. That's not a him thing. What I encourage the families I work with to, is to look at that and say, well, what could we do? Well, we could set up our own personal email where you can still send me things and you can write about the, what you're doing in your Minecraft so that I can understand your world. Like, you can take what's going on and make it so that you've got, still got that connection. And I think sometimes we see things very black and white, like this was happening and now it's not. Whereas actually when we go, right, well, what can we do? What, how can we make this connection? How can we get this connection back? Not in the way we want it, but in the way the child needs it, then you can start to, to rebuild that connection. And so like you say, it's not the tech that's the problem. It's the, it's the moving with the tech and the ability to see things through a different lens that is challenging, I think, for parents. Roblox is a very big game with the youth today, I understand. Yeah. I haven't played it, but I do ask. And I, my kids tell me, I go, what's this game you're playing? And they tell me all about it. And I ask questions. And I know most of the games my kids play inside out. They tell me and I know what's going on. My brother-in-law, he created a Roblox account and he would play the games with his son. Yeah. So he was in it with them. Why can't you do that? Yeah, yeah you used to sit on the floor and play Lego with them or play trains. Yeah. Why can't you play Roblox with them? Yeah. Why can't you go into their Minecraft world? Why can't you build something? To Minecraft is Lego without the price limit. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, once you bought Minecraft, there's no like big kit. You don't. It's not limited by the number of blocks you've owned or bought. It's your mind is your limit, and that's what I love about Minecraft. So my son, my what, son's eighteen now, but he was really into Minecraft at like twelve or whatever. And he used to tell me in long detail about this Minecraft thing. And I didn't really, I'm not really a game person. Like, I just don't get games. That's not how my brain works. But I remember thinking, like, if you listen to him now, even though you're not interested, he's going to talk to you later. If you don't listen now, he won't talk to you about things that are important later on. He always remembers that the one time I did try and play, play Minecraft with him, I burnt down his whole world. By, by this, and he's never quite forgiven me for that. But at 18, <laughs> He he talks to me. He cut, you know. He he tells me about his interaction. He tells me everything. He comes and he talks to me because he trusts me to listen. He trusts me not to judge and to tell him that it's a load of rubbish. And he trusts me that I, you know, I can be a sounding board. And I very specifically remember the moment where I thought you can either just go shut up because I can't listen anymore, or you can listen now and it'll pay. It there'll be payback later. And that's exactly what I did. And it is, is sometimes I'm not hugely interested in what my daughter's doing, or sometimes I go, and this really makes no sense. But it's her choice, and she's really enjoying it. And I'm kind of fascinated by what she's getting out of it and enjoying. And it is, it is fascinating. I haven't put my children's worlds down in Minecraft. I would occasionally go into their world and build a word poo in giant blocks in the sky or something, and then 
they'd find it a week later and have a go at me. I, I did those childish <laughs> things. But I also, I did play Minecraft and I got to the point where, can you do this? And, it, and, it, and I did it all. I spent an hour doing this thing going, could you do this? And it did. I was like, oh, oh, I went, no, I'm going to get addicted. <laughs> I, I, I need to step away from this now <laughs> because it was, it was really, I loved Minecraft and I had to walk away because I would lose years in Minecraft. And there are other games. And you've got to remember why children play them. They are very predictable, very safe. And a lot of these games, they are very much, it's what they want. It's it's really, especially Roblox, which is just a suite of 100 games within a, or thousands of games within a specific thing. It's their choice and what makes them happy. And there, there is a Roblox game, which is called like Natural Disasters. And it's like, it's going to be a volcano. It's going to be a tsunami. It's going to be an earthquake. And you've got to try and guess You've got a minute or so to get somewhere, and then it's go right. This is happening in twenty seconds. You've got twenty seconds to get to a safe place so you don't die. And it does this like every two, three minutes. And the last one alive wins. It's that sort of thing, and it's just really simple, really fun. But the adrenaline goes, and they have so much fun. And yeah, you talked about it, and the it is just nonstop. And the same as you, I, I've put that effort in, and I am rewarded. I am rewarded. I walk up into my daughter's, what are you playing? Oh, are you playing that? What, what are you up to? What, what's changed since the last time I was here? Explain to me what you've actually worked towards. And then she'll show me. And I spent the last, she plays a game called Genshin Impact, and I spent the last five weeks going, have you got a blue sword yet? And she just laughs at me because she knows it's silly, but I really also have no idea what I'm supposed to be asking. <laughs> but she will try and teach me. And she shows me the world and tells me, oh, this, and it is, and she's fascinated. And we have these conversations. So we're building all those conversational skills. So going back to right at the beginning, that those nonverbal, I she wants to share. Yeah. It's not. I need you to have a conversation with me. Okay. Well, what on whatever. No. Have the interest. Have wanting to share something, and the communication follows. Mm-hmm. Definitely amazing. So excellent. I'm going to wrap up because we could. I think we can go for quite a while on this topic. <laughs> Um, but it is, it's all about celebrating those things. It, whatever it is, if they're doing something, working towards something, celebrate it. And if you're a parent and your child's doing his amazing stuff at home, that isn't the school aren't seeing, why not capture it and share it with the school? So they can see that your child is much more than not great at maths and not great at English. You can do that as well. So thank you for coming to the show today, Joanne. Thank you very much for having um, me. You've given me a couple of links for late talkers and your contact details. So I'll be sharing those in the show notes along with your contact details and you'll find the show notes wherever you listen to the podcast or on our website. So thank you for listening. If you haven't subscribed already, please click on that subscribe button. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for the Sendcast, and you will find us. If you are struggling to show progress, if your assessment process is overcomplicated, takes too long or you're constantly just saying they're below and not celebrating those small steps, have a look at the B-Squared website or book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products and show you how you can celebrate those small successes. We have a range of assessment products to help all schools show small sets of progress for people's SEND. If you're a school in England still confused by the engagement model, not sure about pre-key stage standards, or how to assess pupils working out of year group, please get in contact. You can also find out about our online training and conferences. You can read our blog, watch our webinars. It is all on the B-Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book an online meeting with me in the show notes. And if you want, you can also drop me an email. My email address is dale 
at bsquared.co.uk. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. It is goodbye from me. Goodbye. Thank you very much. Bye, everyone.